Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Martin Gross, Professor of Surgery and Chief of Trauma and Critical Care at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. Dr. Gross has published extensively and is a recognized expert in vascular injury. More specifically, he has authored many articles on screening for blunt cerebrovascular injury. He recently was the senior author of a paper titled Blunt Cerebrovascular Injury Screening with 32-Channel Multi-Detector Computed Tomography. More slices still don't cut it. The article was published in the March 2011 issue of the Annals of Surgery, volume 253, pages 444 to 450. The article also has a uh, excellent accompanying editorial by Drs. Biffle and Moore. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Let's start by putting the problem of blunt cerebrovascular injury in perspective. How common is it and what are the consequences of missed injury? Overall, the incidence of blunt cerebrovascular injury uh, is not all that common. It occurs in about one half of 1% to uh, up to 2% in all victims of blunt trauma. However, if you look at uh, high-volume trauma centers, for example, then those institutions are going to see a fair number of these particular patients. Um, And the consequences of injury being missed? Uh, The the consequences of a missed injury are potentially devastating, with anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of these patients uh, with with an untreated blunt cerebrovascular injury will go on to develop a stroke. And so that's important because the, the consequences of the stroke uh, are fairly dramatic in terms of subsequent mortality, not just simple morbidity. So um, that, that calls into question then the need to accurately and rapidly uh, diagnose the problem, albeit it's a fairly rare issue overall, which makes finding the needle in the haystack that much more difficult. Uh, absolutely. And then that also is what makes it even more imperative to have a, a functional, reasonable, cost-effective uh, but more importantly, clinically effective, sensitive screening test. So with that then, let's go into your, um, let's go into your study. Uh, can you just review basically what you guys did and what you found? Sure. Over the uh, study period, we looked at about a little over 20,000 uh, victims of blunt trauma. And of those, uh, there were 684 patients who had both CT angiography and digital subtraction angiography. Uh, the re- the, this 684 patients were uh, patients who met standard screening criteria for blunt cerebrovascular injury. Uh, that's why the number is so much less. Uh, the standard criteria, of course, are people who have unexplained neurologic exam, uh, cervical spine fractures, neck soft tissue injuries, skull base fractures, Lafort fractures, uh, Horner syndrome, or, or any other sort of neurologic uh, defect. Uh, of those 684 patients then, uh, there were 90 patients who had 109 injuries. Okay, so since we have four cerebrovascular uh, vessels, then obviously some patients are going to have more than one vessel injured. Uh, as one would expect, those people who had injuries were a bit more severely injured with a higher injury severity score of, of 28 uh, compared to those who had no injury uh, when their mean ISS was uh, 22. Uh, overall, the sensitivity of using CTA 
uh, for screening for blunt cerebrovascular injury, uh, unfortunately, was quite low, uh, hovering around 50%, actually 51%, uh, which unfortunately, at least in our hands, uh, does not make CTA a very effective screening test by itself. Yeah, that's a dramatically low number for a screening study where, where one would aim for a high sensitivity. So you guys essentially found that it's a flip of a coin. It's 50%. Uh, that's exactly right, but not inconsistent with some of the more recent data that's been published uh, using CTA alone as a screening uh, exam. So um, let's talk about that for uh, a few minutes in comparison to other studies. There were... Um, at, total of four studies published that directly compared CTA to digital subtraction angiography uh, between 2006 and 2009. And you're right. The, the majority of the studies backed up what you guys found. That is to say the CTA uh, sensitivity is too low. Eastman and colleagues are the one paper that everyone kind of talks about because he found essentially 100% sensitivity and accuracy. Why is there such a dramatic difference between his paper and yours and really his paper and everybody else's? Uh, well, I'm not sure I really have a very good answer for that. I can tell you that at least in our particular study, every patient had both tests. Uh, if you go back and review some of the other data that's been published, not all patients actually had both tests. Uh, in some instances, the uh, DSA or digital subtraction angiogram was used to confirm the CTA diagnosis. Uh, and then in some cases, they, those patients received arteriograms uh, at the discretion of the attending physician. So in, in some respects, we, we may be comparing apples to oranges. Uh, I, I'm not sure why their data was so compelling. Uh, now, how is it that you guys were able to do both CT angiography and digital subtraction angiography? Because your study is retrospective. So these patients were undergoing these, these studies outside the confines of a protocol research protocol per se. Well, now, Bob, you know that we would never uh, do anything that would uh, violate the IRB. And in fact, uh, clearly stated in the manuscript, we do have, I did have IRB sure. approval. Uh, but the, due to the enthusiasm and the early data that suggested that CTA could very well be a very good screening tool, given the volume that we have at the Presley Trauma Center in Memphis, uh, we then instituted CTA as part of our normal protocol as evaluation for these patients. Uh, still screening with angiography the high-risk patients because, again, we weren't really sure whether or not CTA was going to work. What we found uh, is, is what we published in, in that, yes, CTA uh, did identify some injuries but was not really sensitive, sensitive enough to be used strictly as a diagnostic criteria. And you found another group that was particularly vulnerable to both being injured and also to having missed injuries. So really a, a big problem. Uh, and those seem to be female patients. Yeah, that, that was really quite a surprise, actually. Uh, I'm not sure we really want to spend a whole lot of time getting into this whole gender differences in, in, in trauma and the like. But there were a significantly higher number of females compared to males. Still, males predominated in injury just simply because there's more males that they come to a trauma center than females. Uh, but the incidence was higher in females, and I don't really have a very good explanation for that. Interestingly, we also, as an aside, we looked at, at patients who required abdominal wall reconstruction, for example. Uh, 
uh, following giant planned ventral hernias and found that the recurrence rate was significantly higher in females hmm. than it was in males. Uh, again, perhaps a subtle difference, uh, but you know, in high-volume places, then you, you pick up on some of these things. Uh, I, but short answer, I don't really have a very good explanation for that. And, you know, we should mention that these were not all uh, elderly individuals. In fact, the average age in the trial was 39. That, that's correct. These are young, otherwise healthy uh, patients. The next point, I think, to, uh, to raise is uh, the downsides of uh, just treating people empirically with anticoagulation. So it's one thing to say, you know, this, tr this study may give me a high rate of false positives, but, you know, what's the downside of treating them with some aspirin or maybe a little bit of heparin? Um, and, in fact, you found a distinct hemorrhagic complication related to treatment. Uh, yeah, there were a, a few patients who developed uh, worsening of their brain injury, and that's really the subset of patients that we, you, you really have to walk a very fine line uh, on in patients who had suspected cerebrovascular injury but also have intracranial hemorrhage for whatever reason, uh, and in those patients, neurosurgery has opted not to perform craniotomy, for example, a small subdural or, or, or intraparenchymal contusion or something like that. Uh, we have to be very, very careful in those patients. Uh, and, and then it becomes a risk-benefit thing. Uh, if, if under close monitoring with uh, most likely intracranial pressure monitoring device, uh, with close monitoring and low-dose anticoagulation, trying to keep the PTT between 40 and 45, it's critical not to get it out to 80. It's not like we're treating a pulmonary embolus or something, uh, but we just want to keep the patients slightly anticoagulated. With that, Yes, we did have some hemorrhagic complications, but in the overall picture, the incidence of those hemorrhagic complications was relatively low. So it's an interesting picture we're painting because it's one of these damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's correct. You know, if you miss the injury, he strokes. If you treat unnecessarily, you, you create a hemorrhagic issue. Um, on the other hand, if you wait all day to try to really hammer home the diagnosis before you initiate therapy, um, Eastman's second paper uh, 2009 Journal of Trauma, showed that the stroke rate was high. So he argues that we should get a CTA, uh, potentially with all the downsides that we've talked about, uh, because the time to diagnosis of injury in his study was shortened by 30 hours, and the relative decrease in subsequent stroke was 75%. Um, so understanding now the downsides of underdiagnosis uh, versus uh, overdiagnosis. How does one go about screening for this disease? Uh, for one thing, you've got to have a very good working relationship with intervention, your interventional radiologist. Uh, that's really key, and we're fortunate enough to have a very good relationship with our interventional radiologist. And I'll also throw this out to any potential potential interventional radiology fellows if you want to do a lot of uh, cerebral angiography. <laughs> Uh, take a look at Memphis. Uh, but let's just back up for just a second and, and uh, about this whole screening concept. With the standard screening criteria that we went over before, we, we and others, primarily the, the group from Denver, the, we're, we're probably the two groups that have published the most about, that, about this screening business. Uh, if you use the standard screening criteria, in pretty much all the studies, you're going to wind up identifying about 80% of the patients who have blunt cerebrovascular injury, uh, which is pretty good considering that we didn't really know this disease existed you know, 30 years ago, even though it likely has been there all along and, and would wind up accounting for some of the unexplained deaths on the floor, for example, that we would 
write off as, oh, gee, it must have been a pulmonary embolus, when in fact the patient probably had a carotid injury and, and had a massive stroke and died. So we can identify about 80% of those. If we throw CTA into the mix, and, and this was the interesting thing, by using CTA as a screening criteria, in addition to the other standard screening criteria, we were able to pick up about 16% more. So that leaves us with about probably 4 or 5% of patients who ha now have blunt cerebrovascular injury that don't really have an abnormal CTA or don't really have any of the other standard risk factors for injury. Picking up 95 to 96% of those patients as opposed to 80% of those patients with the standard criteria is a pretty big jump. So I don't want to downplay the role of CTA. I think it's a very important role as a screening tool, as a, as a step to then go on for, for digital subtraction and geography. Unfortunately, the, the, as much as we want CTA to work, because it would be the perfect screening and diagnostic test, frankly, I, I just don't think we're there yet. Now, whether this has to do with technical capabilities of the scanners, probably not. It probably has to do with individual physiology, timing of contrast load, resolution settings, thickness of slices, uh, maybe even the phases of the moon. I, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, there, there's got to be something else uh, that's going to make this better. And you guys used a 32-channel uh, detector. So yes, we did. just to kind of talk about technology and, and what you guys were using. So let me ask you this then. Uh, I understand your point, but let's just take it to a real practical level. I've got a patient who was in a high-speed motor vehicle collision, the airbag deployed. He wasn't wearing his seatbelt. He comes in with a Lafort 1, Lafort 2. He's awake, alert oriented. He's got no neurologic deficits, but he's got a mechanism that's respectable um, and maybe an injury pattern to follow. What should I do with that individual for screening? Uh, it, it, as part of the, the evaluation of that patient, most likely would wind up getting a CT of his head because I'm sure he was probably sure. goofy at the scene sure. or something like that. Uh, so that, that patient would get a CTA at our institution. All right, and if that CTA comes back normal, negative, his physical exam doesn't change. He's still neurologically intact, you know, concussion, whatever, uh, but no stigmata of stroke whatsoever. Your CTA is negative. Is that the end of it? We, we would study that patient because he has uh, certainly potential for injury given the high-speed uh, car crash. He's got Lafort facial fractures, significant fa facial fractures, so we know that he had some uh, significant amount of injury above the shoulders. Uh, that patient would uh, get an arteriogram. A DSA. Yes, he would. So, so if he's going to get a DSA regardless, I mean, the CTA was negative and he went on to DSA, why not just get the DSA? What's the role of the CTA? Well, as some of the previous uh, studies that have shown that perhaps there is a learning curve, uh, we have since, uh, subsequent to publishing uh, this study, we've altered our technique uh, in obtaining uh, CTAs. Uh, the radiologists have fiddled with this and that, mm -hmm. and frankly, I don't uh, really keep up with that sort mm -hmm. of thing, but uh, they have altered the way they do it. Uh, is it better? I don't know. We're evaluating it now. And in that instance, it's really you can use it as a performance improvement uh, um, study at, mm -hmm. at your own individual institution uh, so that we can determine the accuracy of CTA for both screening and hopefully diagnosis. 
So you think that ultimately, once we figure out the variables that are involved for the for the miss rate, um, CTA may become the diagnostic modality of choice and replace DSA in most cases. Absolutely, that's exactly what we hope. Uh, even though we've published, you know, several papers that, that say that CTA is not really very good, it's not that we're anti-CTA. We're, we're raising, waving the flag that says, well, wait a minute now. Maybe CTA isn't all it's cracked up to be, and that maybe it's not ready yet to stand alone as, a, as a, the ideal screening test and diagnostic test. Uh, I think that eventually it will be, and then we can reserve angiography for those patients who have injuries who may need may need some sort of intervention, such as in the endovascular stenting or something like that. And when are you getting the DSA? Is this in the middle of the night kind of thing for the asymptomatic patient? Uh, some patients get them in the middle of the night. Uh, some want them getting them uh, first thing on the schedule in the morning. Depends on when the patient comes in and depends on, frankly, level of suspicion. Okay. Fair enough. And so this gets back to uh, uh, Biffle and Moore's editorial. Uh, it's, it's a very well-written editorial, as one would expect. And they express a concern that if we were to throw away CTA and just say, listen, it, this is just simply not going to work. Let's go back to the world of DSA. In fact, most people would stop screening for the disease and uh, you know, there'd be ramifications that the stroke rate would go up, although the disease burden would go down, which is exactly what we don't want to see. Um, so they're, they're in fact, is a role for CTA. What should I do now as a trauma director, not at the uh, Presley Memorial Trauma Center, in using CTA or DSA? I still think that patients uh, who are at risk should undergo CTA at your individual institution. Uh, and I still think that high-risk patients uh, should under undergo uh, angiography. Uh, I agree with many things that, that uh, Biffle and Moore said in, in that uh, uh, editorial. And, and frankly, we all want the same thing. We all want a good, effective screening and diagnostic test uh, that is the least invasive possible, and frankly, the cheapest one uh, possible. Uh, however, given the fact that a conservative estimates of a stroke an individual stroke are about $70,000 per patient, uh, then it's worth spending a little on the front end in order to reduce the uh, cost of potential stroke, not to mention just the devastation in, in that p particular patient's lifestyle to, to the patient and their family. And it, it's, it's just a devastating outcome of a... Of a missed or untreated injury uh, in these particular patients. Now, do you think we're at a point where a larger multi-center study is warranted, or do you think the technology and radiology capabilities, reads, whatever, uh, is still not quite there to, to try to see if, in fact, these four separate studies would show something different in a much larger amalgam? I think that eventually we will come to a large multi-center study, but as I mentioned before, I think that the that the rate limiting step here is some some sort of magic that's done in the CT scanner, uh, and, and until we can figure out exactly what that little little wizard does, that, that somehow he's pushing, waving a wand, and, and some people get excellent images, and some people get perhaps not so excellent images. Once we figure out exactly how to reproduce those images across the board then I think we could, we, we could do a study. Now, uh, there will never be a randomized prospective trial because that just, 
that would be silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, in their editorial, they raised the you know that that British Medical Journal uh, article about you know there's no, never a randomized controlled trial about whether or not you need a parachute right. when you jump out of an airplane. But uh, so that's never really going to happen. And, and certainly, common sense uh, needs to prevail. Uh, and, but again, we would love for CTA to work. We would love for it to work. I just don't think it's there yet. All right. Fair enough. Well, I think the the purpose of uh, asking you to come by was to kind of uh, discuss this. Um, there are some discrepancy in the literature, although admittedly, most of the studies that compared CTA to DSA on a head-to-head uh, found your findings. That That is to say, the sensitivity is low, Eastman's one trial notwithstanding. Um, and I think we should just encourage people, um, as we're doing in our trauma center, to use CTA, but then to uh, really try to validate uh, each individual's uh, individual institution's sensitivity uh, directly um, for reasons that we still can't quite figure out. There does appear to be that some places have a much higher sensitivity than others, and um, and we'll see what, what happens with the, uh, with the Presley um uh, Memorial Trauma Center. So you guys are working with your radiologists to try to identify this problem, the, the root cause of the problem, and resolve it. Yes. Yes, we are. We, we've got a pretty uh, enthusiastic uh, group of radiologists who, who do come in in the middle of the night. Yeah, that's impressive. I think most of us don't. <laughs> uh, I mean, the interventional guys do. Now we have uh, the, the, the CT radiologist, we have an attending there 24-7 to, to read the films, which has helped in interpretation of the CTAs. Uh, studies that use retrospective evaluation of the next day or two days later, something of the CTA comparing it uh, to a DSA, I don't think those are particularly helpful uh, because everybody's got 20-20 hindsight, mm-hmm. especially after you already know the outcome of the patient. Uh, so I, I don't find those particularly helpful, except I f- find them good for information that, hey, you know, we need to look for these subtle things. Well, now that we've got radiologists there all the time, I think that's going to help um, but still, there are some technical issues that I think need to be solved that, that, that we just haven't quite figured out, we being in generic we. Well, I, I look forward to seeing uh, further results from you and also from uh, the, the Denver group. And I think those are the two leading groups in the country uh, when it comes to at least publishing um, on this topic. Uh, we've been speaking today with Dr. Martin Kroos regarding screening for blunt carotid injury. I would like to thank you again for taking the time to review this topic with us and congratulate you and your team on your ongoing work in this field. And as I said, I look very forward to continuing to read about uh, your future findings. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani.